This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is the 25th episode of The Personal Finance Show. My first episode was just over a year ago with Chris Chan from Duello. I had no theme song, no introduction. It just starts with, uh, so you're Chris Chan. I wasn't even planning on making a podcast. I was recording the interview with Chris so that I could transcribe it for my blog, investwisely.ca. But the audio quality was pretty good. And I decided to release the audio as well. And then it just hit me that a podcast makes so much sense. I thought about going back and adding an intro and music, but I decided to leave it as a reminder that sometimes you just have to start something and put it out there, even if you haven't figured it all out yet. Making podcasts is something I really enjoy doing. I find all the guests myself and I edit and produce the episodes on my own. I even wrote the theme song that was used for the last 19 episodes. And the voice you hear at the beginning of every episode, this is the personal finance show. That's my wife, Kayla. I'm excited about the future of the personal finance show. I've had some great guests so far, and I have many lined up for the future. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and writing reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you're not already on my email list, you can sign up at investwisely.ca. The form's at the bottom of every page. But enough about me. Let's get started with today's guest. Eric Brotman understands that a relationship with a financial planner is a multi-generational thing. I talk about this a lot in the show, but it's all about a holistic plan that takes into account all of the financial aspects of your life. And it's about reviewing the plan once or twice a year and changing it to match your goals and objectives as they change throughout the course of your life. This is an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time plan or a transactional thing. This is a lifetime deal. In the interview, Eric didn't list what he calls his uh, alphabet soup of designation letters after his name. He's got a lot of professional designations, and that's not a bad thing. But as he says, you can't get a diploma in integrity and hang it on the wall. Confidence is something you earn. So yes, credentials are nice. But never blindly trust someone because they have a lot of letters after their name. Talk to them and make sure that they're listening to your story and working towards your goals. And it doesn't hurt to get a second opinion. I couldn't make it down to Maryland anytime soon, so Eric joined me online to tell his personal finance story. My, my first experience with money was actually when I was about 12 or 13 years old, and I started working, cutting lawns and shoveling snow and doing anything I could to, to, to make money because it was always important to me to do that. Why, why was it important? I, what was the motivation to have money at that age? You know, the motivation even at that age for me was independence, knowing that if there was something I wanted, I didn't have to ask for it. Sure, because you would, ha- you would, you would get an allowance already or no? No, no allowance. And, and, you know, we weren't a chore based household and there was no allowance for that. We were expected to do various things around the house, but it wasn't for, for money. So, you know, as soon as I was able to, you know, command 10 or 15 or $20 a a lawn, I did. And then, you know, promptly went into fast food and at $3 and 35 cents an hour, it was a, 
boy, that was a lucrative career move. That's uh, that's how much it was. That is crazy. What is yeah, what is $3. Min- that would be minimum wage at the time? At the time, that was minimum wage. Now I was fourteen years old, so you're going back thirty two years. Okay, um, but minimum wage had just been increased from two eighty five an hour uh, to three thirty five an hour, which was a big jump. And at three thirty five an hour, I worked twenty hours a week, and I made sixty bucks a week. So you're making money. Uh, where were you working? What what uh, uh, like what fast food place? I'm curious. I I worked at Burger King. Nice. Um, it was the it was the only chain that would hire someone at fourteen at the time without oh. a work permit. Okay. Okay. The rest of them said you had to be 15 or 16. And I was in a position where I could either get a ride or I could walk to work if I had to. So, you know, I, I was able to, to, to work a, a shift after school or what have you and, and, and still get home. And, you know, a three, four hour shift was a $12 day. That's really hard to believe, but, uh, but that's yeah, wow. so, so Burger King lasted for, for a couple of years and then I went to work and I, I stocked shelves and did inventory for a clothing store, a men's clothing store. Okay. And of course, this is before not only the internet, but even barcoding. So we were doing inventory with tick marks on a clipboard, oh, wow. climbing Physical. ladders and looking at shelves. Yeah, oh, yeah, just checking it all off the page. Yeah. And then I started doing internships. Okay, nice. Because at yeah. that point, it made sense to start getting um, some experience and some resume builders and improve my college application and, and sort of figure out what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. Yeah. So how did, did you know sort of and then you kind of figured it out or did you just start doing random things? Well, I had a pretty good idea. I did a, a full battery, a two-day battery of aptitude testing when okay. I was a freshman in high school. Wow. One of, the best, one of the best things that my folks ever had me do, I went down to D.C., um, and in Washington, they had a, a place called Johnson O'Connor Research Center, and there are 10 of them throughout the United States. I don't know if they're international or not, but I went and did every kind of aptitude test you can think of from number memory to tweezer dexterity to you name it. All right. And what they came up with was not only those careers where I would likely thrive, but also where I'd likely be uh, successful and happy. Hmm. And also the ones that I should rule out immediately, such as dentistry or brain surgery. (laughs) So I I knew immediately I wasn't doing that. Well, that's, I mean, it's uh, good that we knew rather than wait for you to be in the chair and doing surgery. Oh, you, you definitely didn't want that. So so I had, a, I had it lead me to law and business and uh, finance, okay. which was great. And, uh, I, you know, ironically, I did my first couple internships. I did one with a life insurance company. I did one with a law firm. And I did one with a brokerage firm. So there were three different summers functionally. So you, um, you would just go to these companies. Was this an organized internship set up through your school? No, absolutely not. This was a, I'm, I'm willing to work. I don't even need to be paid. I just want to learn. Wow. I mean, to me, I don't know. Is that common in in your experience for high school students? It's not only uncommon. At this point, in some cases, it's not even legal anymore. <laughs> yeah. so, so you made well, your I, own way. I did. And, and you know, I was in college. I worked uh, for the, the school newspaper, and I was an advertising rep, and I, I earned commission selling advertising in the school newspaper, 14,000 copies a day and so forth. And so that paid enough of my expenses that I could afford to then have an internship at, you know, with, with little or no income at all. And so I did a little of both. So I would be in school and I'd have an internship and I'd have a job. Wow. And, and so, and what are you doing with this money? Like, I mean, go, let's go back to, to even the, the lawns and the Burger King. As you're going, what, what are you doing with this money? Absolutely nothing productive in the long term. Okay. Uh, it, 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 it paid for the, 
for the needs and wants of the day, but none of them were critical or important. It was more or less spending money for me. I was very blessed to be in that situation. I certainly didn't put any way. I wasn't thinking about investment vehicles or Roth IRAs or savings or any of those kinds of, I wasn't thinking about any of that kind of stuff. I, I was just um, enjoying myself and, and feeling like, hey, I, I didn't have to ask anybody for permission to do various things, even at a young age. Well, you're not even 18 yet at this point, right? Correct. Well, yeah, some, so- some of my work, even past 18, I, I still wasn't, I still wasn't fiscally or financially savvy. Okay. In fact, the, the best financial decision I think I made as a young person was um, was taking summer classes so I could graduate a semester early. So I only did three and a half years of college. Oh, that's good. That's and, a, that would have saved you how much at the at the time, or do you remember? Well, at the time, it was about nine thousand dollars. Okay. Yeah. Which, which was real money. And, um, and so I graduated early. It also gave me a jump on the workforce. So I hit the workforce younger than most of my peers and at a cycle where there were fewer people applying. Sure. You're starting from not really a lot of savings when you go into college. Correct. Oh, how'd you pay for college? I was very fortunate. My grandfather, my grandfather paid for my college education. He was a prominent prosthodontist doing dentistry. Nice. I was not, I was not an apple falling close to that. that no, you couldn't sure, follow but. him, but, uh, he respected that. He did. And, uh, and he was able to put me through school. And so I, I was, I was very lucky. I, I, I count those blessings. I, I graduated with no student debt. I graduated with very little savings or anything to my name, but I wasn't in a hole and that's a big deal. It's a big deal, especially, I mean, like you said, you went to, you went to college. Did, what, what, what uh, school did you go to? I went to university of Pennsylvania. Yeah, and is this? Uh, I don't know the categories of schools. Is this considered like a really expensive one now, or is it? Uh, yeah, it's one of the it's one of the eight Ivy League schools and okay. one of the more expensive schools in the United States. So, so it is, and and just to give people an idea, how much would a uh, is it would it be a four year bachelor these days? Yeah, how much would that cost uh, someone on average, like a basic one? Today, probably two hundred and eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, and that's insane, right? So I think especially in the states, but also in Canada. If you get somebody to pay for school, this is like this is a gift. This is a, a something that you can't take for granted. It's a huge gift, and, and and making decisions on where to go to school based on what is reasonably affordable. I, I think thirty years ago, an undergraduate degree was enough to get a pretty good job. Today, mm. specialization and the need for grad school is really playing a big role. And so, I think where you go to undergraduate school is less important today than it was then. In much the same way where you went to high school 60 or 70 years ago was important, more important than it is today. So there's a there's definitely a trend. I think graduate and professional school is where you really cut your teeth and build your your vitae. Prior to that, I, I think it's really just about getting some basic building blocks. Well, I mean, some people argue, especially in the States, because it's so expensive, that college isn't even worth it. It depends what you want to do. And I would say colleges and universities have to think real hard about where they're positioned in the marketplace, because I think college educations are becoming a lot like retail establishments. Mm. You either have to be the least expensive and the best value, or you have to be the best. You know, the, the real high-end retail will always be fine because there'll be somebody willing to pay it. But That's the, right. middle, the middle stores are going out of business because somebody can undercut them if price is the key. And somebody can outperform them if, if uh, quality is the key. And so they have nothing to hang their hat on. And I think colleges are the same way. Either, if you're going to spend that kind of money for college, it better be because it's one of the top 20 or 30 or 40 schools in your country. That's right. Otherwise, otherwise I, I can't justify spending triple to, to go to what is arguably becoming a country club 
less than less. Than, I mean, I, I think you can get a great education anywhere and not to sound cliche, but there's some awfully good schools that are not real expensive that should be having a field day with some of these big price tags. But people are paying for the for the prestige. And are, you're uh, you got some kids, right? I have one daughter, second grader. Okay. So are you thinking about are you thinking about it already or no? Of course. Uh, <laughs> we've been thinking about it since since birth. I started yeah. <laughs> putting money in a college in a college fund as Good soon as you. I got her social security number. Of course you did. That uh, <laughs> And uh, well, first of all, it's good tax planning. Sure. Second of sure. all, second of all, I recognize that, you know, we, we are, we're in an area in Maryland where there are an incredible number of private schools. And we chose to send our daughter to private school here in an all girls environment. And we thought that was best for her learning style. And we, you know, we had all the things we needed to do to try and find the right school. So paying for private school down here is no joke. And it's, uh, it's very expensive. So when, when I started putting money away for college, what I did was I, I decided to save for an in-state public college. Okay. So University of Maryland. Sure. With the idea that if she gets into Penn or Harvard, the cost to go there will be roughly equal to what I've saved for University of Maryland plus what I'm used to paying for 12th grade. Ah, nice. Okay. You know, in that way, I'm not oversaving because I don't want to have so much money in a fund that it's then not used for its intended purpose because that does create a tax problem. And yeah, what happens in uh, in, in your jurisdiction if uh, the you, this is a specific education fund? I'm guessing that you put it money. Are, in? They are, although they're not specific to Maryland; they're they're nationwide. In fact, in fact, even um, the 529 plans can be used for Canadian schools. I know McGill's on the list and some others. Really? Other, so, oh, that's uh, yeah, good to it, know. It's pretty broad, and um, and that's a good thing. And now, as of tax reform four weeks ago, mm. um, it can now be you can now use up to ten thousand dollars a year from those funds toward private school. Okay, a year per per kid. So it's now taken on a whole new meaning. There's been a real focus on trying to keep education more affordable, and um, the, the the tuition costs are ridiculous. But you know, I'm I'm involved with higher ed. I'm, I serve on the board of trustees for a local college here, a local university, and very few people pay the full price tag. Okay. The, the price tag you see is so there's a discount rate that's applied and and I tell families every day to do the federal aid forms, even if it seems like they're gonna laugh you out of their office, because you just don't know and it's better to establish a file and to try and then go after the scholarships, the grants, the work studies, the subsidized loans. You might be surprised, if, right? Uh, here right. it's and the same it, story here. Yeah. Even if you just get a loan, if they subsidize the loan and you're essentially getting it interest-free for four years, well, that's free money for four years. Use it and then pay it back promptly. Yeah, that, that's what uh, most people will get here. There are some grants, uh, for, especially for low-income uh, low I mean, people. But uh, you'd be surprised, uh, especially, as you said, education policy changes all the time. You just had it change four weeks ago. Yeah, it does change all the time. So does so does retirement policy and tax policy. And I think one of the things that makes folks nervous, um, and, and there's lots of reasons to be nervous about lots of things economically and, and, and politically and otherwise, but, but in terms of things that make folks nervous is the changing environment and planning for something that's 18 years off. Or, or you look at young people and saying, hey, plan for your retirement in 30 or 40 or 50 years. That is so esoteric to a young person. Oh, yeah. I mean, at this point, they, they're, they're trying to figure out whether they get the one or two bedroom apartment. They're not trying to figure out what life's going to look like when they're 70. Which is which is why, uh, you know, when I talk to people about a financial plan, this is just the plan for now. 
and we're going to look at it every six months and it's going to change. It's going to change dramatically. And I believe it's going to change more about what happens on, you know, in your life and in your home than anything that happens on Wall Street or Main Street or what have you. That's right. Because it's all based it, on, it's a, it, you know, personal finance is personal, as we, we all like to say. It's as personal as medicine. Yeah. It really is. Every single situation is different. And, you know, we, we grow up learning lessons. Hopefully some of them are good, but whether they're from our teachers or our religious affiliations or our parents or other, other adults, we learn lessons about money all the time. Most of them are in great need of debunking, but nonetheless, we learn them. And then you get married and two people come together with two completely different sets of, uh, of feelings about money. That's right. You might have one, one spender and one saver or two savers where they never go out and they never do anything because they're both saving so much. Or heaven forbid you get two spenders and they're in trouble instantly. Instant trouble. Let's go to Hawaii tomorrow. I'm in, I'm in Bo. <laughs> <laughs> Instant spenders uh, definitely have a little more fun at first. Talking about lessons, so it doesn't seem like you learned a lot of saving or crazy savings lessons. You were just learning how to work hard for money when you were younger. And so when, and, and we can go to your, where, where you got your first job, when you started making decent living, what did you, when did you learn the savings and investing uh, rules that you follow now? Well, my, my first job after graduation from undergraduate school was at a major brokerage firm okay. where I was, um, I was in the legal department. And my plan was to do estate law and go to law school and do estates and trust or tax law or something really fun like that. Yeah, exciting and, stuff. Oh, wow. I, I want to draft documents all day. And, and no. <laughs> um, but, but I fell in love with the broker's business. But I just remember the act of signing up for my own employee benefits. Mm. I had no idea how to do it. The company couldn't guide me. And I had to turn to parents. Really? Because it's either that or, it was either that or the person next to you at the next cube saying, well, what are you picking? I don't know. And look, which health insurance makes sense? Which you know, how much disability should I be in the stock option plan? Do I want to be in in a, a stock purchase plan? There's a discount. Well, what about the retirement plan? And oh, by the way, I'm barely making rent. So I put away essentially nothing for that first year. Okay. And then a, a year into my career, I, I made a shift to a life insurance company where I was able to go and start living entirely at the time on commission. I mean, that was a commissionable field and largely it still is. Mm, yeah. uh, and the insurance business, the insurance business is, is not generally fee for service. It's commission driven. And so it was perfect for a 22 year old me who says, well, I'm willing to work absurd hours if it means I can make a better living. And, uh, and I did. And that's when I started participating in those things because I was also taking classes. I was taking the personal finance classes and learning the insurance business and the retirement business and the estate planning business. And so I started taking my own advice, realizing, boy, I can't talk to a young person about these things unless I'm taking my own advice. Okay. So you, you took personal finance classes, you're saying, as part of professional development? Absolutely. I took every class I could get my hands on. Some of them were subsidized by the company and some of them weren't. But I started and... and you know, in every industry, there's lots of jargon. And what I have after my name, if I were to use all those designations with the alphabet soup, it would be embarrassing. That's right. <laughs> but the fact is, I took every class I could get my hands on. I wanted to learn. I was so young and I looked even younger. I mean, I was getting carded for, for adult movies. For, well, not adult movies, <laughs> but I was getting carded to go to an R-rated movie. Which and, is and, 18, and so, right? Correct. Well, 17. But, 17, I mean, okay. I, I looked 14 years old. I was in my 20s. And 
you know, I, I looked like somebody's grandkid and how am I going to give them financial advice? That's so it. I, I, I had to make sure I had to make sure I knew more than they did. I think a lot of new professionals I, run into that trouble because people want to trust people who uh, either are like them or look like they've been through it all. Uh, to an extent, that's true. And one of the things that we've done, um, our, you know, our firm, as we grow and as we hire, we hire a lot of young people. And our objective is to make sure that those young people are learning there. We almost set it up like an apprenticeship because I don't want them in front of prospective clients either giving wrong advice or or affecting our brand in the in the marketplace by not being prepared for those kinds of conversations. So instead, uh, we, we will, on a salary basis, we'll bring folks in and give them all the tools and education they need and allow them to work on a team. And it is so much more uh, rewarding and so much more productive. Now we have folks in their late 20s, early 30s who are incredible pros who didn't have to have the the seller starve mentality. They never had to sell anything. They just had to take great care of families. And it's a totally different game. It's so much better. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, you got to sort of kill them with education or with, with knowledge. You know, I don't uh, look at all like a finance uh, guy. If what you mean, if what you mean is you're right out of the, uh, uh, right out of a catalog for, for suits and ties, not so much. Yeah, and, and that's what a lot of people, uh, maybe, maybe of the older generation, that's what they trust. And I'm on a daily basis trying to uh, counter that mentality that you, know, you trust somebody that you trust, not somebody that, that looks good in a suit. Not that I don't look good in a suit. Well, I'm, I'm sure it's dashing. The, the, <laughs> the CFP, if you'll recall, the CFP board, the CFP board did, and, and I don't know if these ran in Canada or not, but they ran a series of ads where they took potential consumers and asked which of these two folks uh, they would trust with their money decisions. And one of them was dressed impeccably. He was a good looking young guy, yada, yada. And they said, Oh, he really is terrific. He knows what he's doing. That's who I would hire. And it turns out he was a DJ (laughs) and it it was purely an act and they were blown away. It really has nothing to do with appearance. There certainly is a way you want to carry yourself and and confidence matters and, and comfort matters, but, yeah. I think there's so many more important things than, than appearance. My goodness. I mean, the, the thing that I, and, and you, you might agree, you sit down and have a conversation with, with a person that you're thinking about uh, either getting advice about your money or if you're actually, in, in your case, people give you money to invest, right? That's right. But, you know, certainly not the day we meet. No. You know, at, the, at the end of the day. <laughs> bring, you, bring the bag would, with the dollar sign right. on it. Yeah, don't show up without your checkbook. No, no, we would never. It's it, it really let's get to know each other. Let's determine if if we're the right you know co-pilot for you. Can we help you? Um, can we add value? Are, are we going to be in a position where we can do the, the, the perform the services that you need as a as a family in a way that either you can't do yourself or are choosing not to yourself? And is it cost effective to do that? There are plenty of folks who we counsel not to use us because they either don't need everything that we're doing. Um, or they're just simply not ready. If they've got lots of student loans to deal with, they probably should start with those before, you know, you, you have to dig out of the hole before you start building the, the, the mountain, right? Absolutely. And, and I, I would counsel people in the reverse way for me, if you have a lot of things to do with uh, estates and, and, and wills and trusts and, and things like that and complicated pensions, that's a little bit outside of my scope as a, as a personal finance coach. So I would send them over to you, say. 
sounds terrific. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that anybody uh, uh, from the States is not listening. I'm sure there's a couple based on my stats. I think uh, they may be from the West Coast. There may be some from the East Coast as well. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear your audience is growing. Um, it's, uh, I, I've, I've listened to a number of your shows and enjoyed them. I appreciate that. I mean, that, and uh, now that we're doing it weekly, uh, I'm getting a lot more. And now that you're on, I mean, uh, I'll, I expect the whole state of Maryland. That could happen, or this could actually close down your podcast forever. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't really know what to expect. I, I think we'll wait and see. The proof will be in the stats. Well, let's, we might as well just go for gold here, right? And just, uh, you know, speak our minds. Uh, <laughs> Sounds so, perfect. Let's do it. So you became super, super educated <laughs> in the world. Basically, it's, like, it's almost like you went and if there were blogs at the time, you would have read them all. And maybe there were. Were there blogs uh, about this at the time? Were there blogs at all? There were no blogs. There, uh, you know, when I started in this career, there, there was there was no internet. Yeah, no internet. Okay. No Is this the eighties? This was nineteen ninety four. Okay, ninety four. I, I I was on the internet in ninety four. Well, it was not good. Students. Were you in school? Were you in school? You were dialing up with prodigy <laughs> or whatever. I was. It took a half an hour to download a song. Okay. Okay, well then, so I shouldn't say there was no internet. It wasn't prevalent in a business setting. No College way. campus was had email. Yeah, yeah. Which I remember seeing for the first time going, there's no way I'm ever going to use that. That is an absolute waste of time. And now I, it's true. I actually waste more time with email than any other job function. But uh, it's a great way to communicate, of course. But no, we didn't have that. So you're talking about faxing and you're talking about lots of phone calls. I mean, it was constant phone calls, even cold canvassing, even being out and about and just shaking hands and meeting people. It was, it was doing networking events and joining associations and uh, doing trade shows and putting on seminars and anything to get your name out there because there was no LinkedIn. There was no social media. It just didn't exist. Well, and as you, as you uh, know from even recent experience, you know, the, the trade shows and the conferences, there's still, I mean, people shouldn't discount those as ways. You can't just build a website and expect people to come. You still have to do all of the stuff that you did to make connections, you know, as we found out going to FinCon. Sure, absolutely. I totally agree with you. However, um, you know, there's, there, it's now possible um, to reach a much wider audience much more quickly. Oh, so much, so much more. And, yes. and that's good or bad because lots of people know if you put your foot in your mouth, it's going to reach a lot of people quickly too. So, uh, you know, you have to be careful anytime you, you make a media appearance or a public speaking appearance or any of those kinds of things, um, recognizing that it's the... Oh, I lost you. I hear you, Bo. Okay, good. You're back. Perfect. I'm back. I, I don't. I didn't go anywhere. But sorry about that. <laughs> it's the you know the internet. They didn't like us talking about how, at the time that it didn't exist. But uh, to to address what you said there, also though there are many many more voices, and it's easier to get lost, and it's easier for people to get lost in maybe some bad advice too, right? There's no question that that's true. There's there's so much information, you know, I, I liken it to a, a service like WebMD or something where you're going to go diagnose yourself on online in three minutes. Some of this you should not do yourself. You know, you shouldn't be writing your own will. You shouldn't be necessarily handling your own investments unless you have the acumen and the time to do it. There are certain decisions that it helps to get some guidance. I would sooner give myself a root canal than do my own tax return. I mean, yeah. I, and, and we already decided I didn't have that ability. Because I, I oh, enjoy it. I enjoy personal taxes myself, but that that's oh. not something you want to do? 
Absolutely not. <laughs> That's I, good. You know, I, I'm so happy to hand a big pile of stuff to somebody and say, here, tell me what my quote unquote fair share is this year, because I know there's going to be a bloodletting and I'd rather be doing something else than calculating. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, it leads me to ask what what was the draw to eventually you're doing financial planning and investing for people or investment advice, right? Yeah, I, I earned the, the certified financial planner designation um, in 1998. So I've now been a financial planner in the U.S. for, for 20 years. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a milestone. And actually, in 2003, I, I launched and started my own firm, which was very exciting and, and scary. And, and so I took the entrepreneurial plunge. And now we're 15 years old and, and we've grown exponentially. It's been a ton of fun. But it, it was... It was definitely a, a hair-raising experience at the time. So what, what was the drive then? Uh, to Because you said law was one of your original thoughts. But what led you to this uh, personal finance uh, area? You, you know, I, I, can, I can sum that up very quickly for you. When I worked at, at the brokerage firm and I was in the legal department, I was settling estates. So everyone I was talking to was generally bereaved. Hmm. And they were trying to figure out what to do next. And in every single case, every single one of them, I couldn't help them. I couldn't change what had already happened because someone had already died. I could help them through the process. I could grease the wheels for them. I could tell them, boy, you need this form and you got to go to that notary and you got to deal with this, this and this. So operationally, I could help them. But in terms of decision making, it was too late. The ship had sailed. Hmm. And so that's when I said, you know, I want to be on the front end of that. So that when these conversations happen, whether it's in a year or in 40 years, when these conversations happen, there's a certain readiness to make what is one of the most difficult times in anyone's life a little easier. And so I look at I, I, I was an English major in college. So natural transition to law school, not as natural to the financial business necessarily. But the, the, the book that most impacted me was actually The Catcher in the Rye. Hmm. And if you remember that book, if you remember anything about that book, Holden Caulfield is the is the protagonist. And he's the one who says his whole job essentially is to stand on the edge of a cliff and catch people who are falling and try and keep them from falling. And, and it's you, like preserving it. And so I am Holden Caulfield financially. And that keeps me going every single day. I know I'm protecting people from making life altering bad decisions almost every day. And I imagine you have actually taken people from uh, beginning to end in the last uh, uh, 20 uh, oh, uh, or 15 years from, the, from your own practice? Absolutely. Uh, you know, our, our practice, we represent lots of multi-generational families, two and three and sometimes even four generations. Um, we've, been, we've, we've been involved with a, a lot of growing families and also a lot of bereaving ones. And, you know, whether it's marriage or divorce or it's birth or death, it's a, it's a, it's a constant renewal and cycle and every family's a little different. So what we do is never boring. It's always fascinating. It's always uh, a lot of fun to get to know people. And it's even more fun to know that not only can we get to know them, but we can, we can be invaluable to them. Maybe not every day, but at the point in time where they need us the most. Because it's not just about, you know, getting a certain return on investment. This is, uh, this is about uh, helping people achieve goals. They're, what are they? What does money mean to them, right? Right. Well, and, and I would suggest that dealing with returns and the minutia of that is probably the single worst thing a lot of folks can do. Not that they don't matter. Of course, they do over time. But 
that is not the most important thing. The most important thing is, are you closer to or further from the objectives that you set? And are they still the right objectives? That's right, because they are change. You still, are you closer to financial independence as you define it? Because no matter what your trajectory, if you suddenly wake up one day and realize you're expecting triplets, your life is changed. And everything and, changes. Right. And those are the kinds of things you can't, you can't plan for everything. In fact, trying to plan for everything is a fool's errand. So I, I think it's important to have a not only a map, but a, but a, a GPS that you can change your, your trajectory on a regular basis. And that's why you have to monitor it. You don't set it and forget it. Absolutely. Uh, we, we need to look at these things constantly. And, and uh, the relationship that you have with the clients and, and as I do, it's, uh, it's long term. It's ideally the, the relationship will be multi-generational and for many decades. And we're trying to set it up so that, that families have a relationship with our firm, not just with me. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, let's not forget that, number one, I plan to retire someday. Not soon, but I do. And I also, you know, I, I could kiss the proverbial bus tomorrow myself. And I wouldn't want someone to be in a lurch because I was gone. That's right. Yeah, you know, I'm sure that's a concern for, for a lot of people who uh, trust one person or one firm with their money. Is it going to be safe if this person is gone? What happens to it? That's a very important uh, conversation. And everyone who works with a financial advisor of any type should be asking their advisor that question. What is the succession plan? Because you're not going to live forever. What's the succession plan? And who are the other folks involved? And who is going to be uh, shepherding me through a process at a point in time when you're not here. Mm-hmm. And we find a lot of clients like to work with advisors younger than they are for that reason, because oh, at the moment where they're going through these things. So you don't want someone so young that you can't relate, but you want to know that there's youth coming up. It's important that we have advisors in their twenties and thirties here because it's a continuum and a client I represent until they're 78 who could live to be 97 still has 20 years of a relationship and they're going to be important and expensive and sometimes challenging 20 years. And they don't want to be out shopping in, in the, you know, in the marketplace for new advisors at that point. They want to know that they've got folks who really know them, know their kids, know their grandkids and are going to take them through that next step. Um, you know, I, I tell folks I've, you know, I've retired a hundred times, you know, or whatever over the years where I've helped folks through that process. Mm. I, I dare not, I, I don't know what it feels like. Other than anecdotally, because I've never done it, but I get a real sense. And, and I'm one of the reasons why I'm working on a new book is to try and change the script on what retirement is, because I think we're doing it wrong. I really do. I think we're messing this up. I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, if you're speaking of uh, the traditional definition of what retirement has been, it's changed. It, it's not only changed, it's so much better than it used to be. Retirement was this whole idea that you work for a company for 30 years and they take care of you with a pension and a gold watch and and you have whatever government benefits there are and you have a little bit of savings and you live happily ever after. That's over. That's been done for Uh, a bit now. Very much. Oh, absolutely. It's every man and woman for themselves. No question. However, the positive of that, the positive of that is that you don't have the same forced retirements in most industries. I mean, you may not want a 98 year old airline pilot. Okay. Um, or truck driver, or certain industries, there are going to be things physically or, or other ways that are going to be difficult at a given point, whatever that point is for you. But the idea of retiring, to retire is to withdraw or disappear. 
I don't know a soul who wants that. No, and, and uh, the fact is, the older that we get, the more value we can add in terms of you know, in terms of knowledge work, as you said, the physical work, uh, that, that, that was the main reason for retiring at a certain age because you physically could not do it anymore. But a lot of our brain power lasts m- way beyond that. And, and so, you know, unless you run into unfortunate uh, uh, situations with Alzheimer's or dementia, a lot of people are quite lucid up to a, a very, uh, possibly even up to the, the day that they die. Well, and, and here's hoping for that because yes. cognitive impairment is a very sad difficult it thing is. for it, everybody but, it is and it happens but, but a lot it might not happen to a lot of us and we if, shouldn't if be put out to pasture well and that's exactly right and that's exactly what we've been doing to people i know and think all of us when when somebody says to you who are you the first thing instinctively most of us think of is what we do for a living mm-hmm. that is an unfortunate thing because tying your identity to your employment while it's an important facet we're so much broader than that yes you know i'm not just a financial advisor i'm a husband and i'm a father and i'm a brother and i'm a friend and i'm a son and i'm all you know you have lots of hats and so the idea that you tie it strictly to what you do means that your identity functionally disappears the day you stop doing that and maybe that the during your life while you're doing it it takes up way too much of your time well, sometimes it does. And, and making sure that you have some balance is a good thing. I, I'm not sure work-life balance exists, mm. but I'm striving for work-life integration. Sure, yeah. Which I think is a little bit more doable. This whole idea of work-life balance where, well, I'm on the clock and now I'm off the clock. and I, it's, I, I think it's a spectrum. It's a continuum. You, you don't suddenly – the days of punching a clock and leaving your work behind, at least in our line of work, well, is not that's, – that's not reality. The reality is – whether it's that an emergency happens or whether it's just that you're thinking about a specific situation or whether it's that you feel like taking a short day to spend time at your, at your kid's school and then you go back and work a little in the evening because of remote access and technology and uh, you can have a client in China and a client in Seattle and, and it doesn't matter where you are or it's so much easier now to work whatever hours make you happy and to incorporate your life into that. Absolutely. You're in Maryland uh, right now, and I'm in, I'm in Canada. Uh, we're in the same time zone, which is nice. And I'm, I'm glad that you could make my three to four o'clock in the afternoon time slot, because that's, <laughs> that's when I like to do this. But if you were like, Bo, I'd like to be on the podcast, but I can't do your hours, I'm not going to say, well, you know, screw you, Eric. You got to fit into my time. <laughs> I'm going to be flexible, as everyone should be able to be. Well, that's good to know. Uh, and I, I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate not being on the receiving end of that this afternoon. <laughs> but that's, that's the, question, it. the real question is, I, I have been to Toronto. Have you been to Maryland? You know what? I haven't, and I have family there too. So I uh, should... Then, well, listen, it, you know, we, are, we are famous for a number of things, but one of them is our crab cakes. So you come down. <laughs> My cousin works for the World Bank in D.C., but they live... In Maryland, they're right next to each other, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're 40 miles from D.C. I do have to make it down. But the idea is, you know, you were able to accommodate. I would have been flexible. And the same thing goes for your clients, right? Absolutely. I mean, it is, it is perfectly reasonable to, to expect a, a certain amount of downtime. In fact, I think it's unhealthy if you don't have some. And so one of the benefits of our, uh, of our growing firm is that 
you know, I suddenly get meaningful vacations. I get meaningful time off where I don't feel like I'm leaving anyone in a lurch because we have so much depth and so much of a team. Um, you know, the first nine years when I started the company, I didn't take a week off. Like I felt I couldn't. And a lot of entrepreneurs go through this where they, they live at work. And, you know, whether you're opening a, a bakery or an accounting firm, it's 24-7. I mean, if you're not making the cupcakes, you're, you're settling the, the accounts receivable, right? So it feels like you're constantly on. And I, I think while that was a valuable experience, I'm so glad I'm finished with that. Were you afraid to and, be away um, from clients? Was that one of the main things too? I was afraid to be out of, out of reach. And even now, I'm still reachable. It's not like I'm on another planet somewhere, but, but I have such an incredible team of people. I've surrounded myself with people who I, I trust to not only make you know, small uh, incremental decisions, but to make big decisions. And if they need me, they'll get me. But I can actually unplug. And it's a really unhealthy thing. There are a lot of folks who sleep with their phones. And I, I don't want to be that guy. No. And, and would you say that because uh, you do invest money for all or some of your clients? Almost all of them. Almost uh, all. You know, there, there's a few exceptions. But for the most part, we, we have assets under management with about 300 families across uh, uh, not only in the U.S., but, but beyond the U.S. And so w- what would a situation be? Are they invested in anything that is, if something happens uh, that you would need to move something around in a 24-hour period? Like. Very, very unlikely. Yes. What, what would happen if they needed me? It's because there's been a tragedy. It's because there's sure, been an illness. Okay. You know, it's because somebody had a stroke or something's gone on or there's been news that they need to deal with. It might even be, hey, I lost my job and I have to make these elections. Or, or I mean, it could be that. But usually it's health. If, if somebody needs to get me when I'm not in the office, it is because of something very big in their lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then, of course, they'll get me. But but beyond that, if it's if it's uh, about the account, uh, we got 15 people who can answer those questions lucidly and capably, and you know using the same uh, the same decision tree, if you will, for for how we make uh, elections. So very few things are are instantaneous. And you know, so, we're yeah. we're not trading anything. We're not we're not first of all we're not stock pickers. Yeah, you're we're not, not you're not trading. Bad news for a specific company or stock is not going to impact our clientele very much. And it's not going to impact us very much. And in fact, we may not even know instantly. It's not going to matter. That knowing uh, is, is not going to change anything. No. And, and it's not going to change what we're going to do, nor is, nor is a, a market uh, movement one day or another that's significantly up or down. You know, we're watching trends. We're watching interest rates. We're watching. Uh, we're certainly taking care of folks in terms of their, their age and their income and what's going on in their lives. But in terms of the markets and the economies, other than basic trends that we're certainly aware of, we're not trying to time anything or be tactical because you know, 75, 80% of the folks who get paid a lot of money to do that are wrong. You've got right. a better shot as a meteorologist. That's right. So this is a good time to get into what is your investment uh, policy for clients in terms of what do their portfolios look like generally? Um, it, it, some, well, again, some of that will depend on age and circumstance. Sure, but sure. Generally speaking, generally speaking, on the equity side, particularly the large cap equities, uh, we're going to be very passive. We're going to own all of them because it's not, it, it, that's rarely going to move the needle one way or another. We so may a little bit of everything, a little bit of all yeah, the, the stocks that exist, like say in the American market, but also others too? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we've historically overweighted non-US relative to our peers. Mm, okay. And that is just, we, we, we weighed it based on the market average of the globe, the market weighting of the globe. So uh, so many people overweight 
their home country, their home country bias, no matter where you are. And I, I've asked people before, I said, if, if you were, uh, you know, if, if you were in Japan, would you want to hold 90% of your portfolio in Japanese stocks? And while that might feel like the, the thing to do either patriotically or because it's what you know, it's not finance. I think a lot of Canadians so, get carried away with that too. You know, owning the, the markets in Canada, maybe a little bit of the U.S., but feeling like, oh, that's fine and good enough, but, but it's not. The, the world has changed so much. If you're a large cap company, you're global anyway. Does it really matter whether your home base is in Frankfurt or in, or, or in uh, Toronto? That's a good it point. Really the whole world economy it, is going to affect your business. Is Coca-Cola an American company or a global company? Well, it, by definition, it's housed here. It's a U.S. company, but it's not. Most of their profits aren't in the U.S. Their growth potential certainly isn't. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, I look at a company like that and, and I'm, I'm neither pro nor anti the company. It's just that you, you look at a company like that and you say, well, is this really a U.S. company? And the answer is no. Is Chrysler dramatically different than Ford? You know, Daimler Chrysler, are they dramatically different just because of where they're housed um, or are they similar creatures? And, and I, I don't ever want to get into that picking game. I just think it's a terrible mistake. Um, the folks who do it, most of them don't do it well. Uh, Peter Lynch had a, a, an amazing run, but if Fidelity can't find his successor, the successor may not exist. At the same time, you look at somebody like a Bill Miller who, who ran Value Trust at Leg Mason and for 13 years or some crazy stretch beat the S&P and he was a genius until the year that 08 hit and he was one of the worst performing equity managers in the world. Wow. Well, he didn't go from genius to idiot overnight and he's now he's a genius again. Hmm. That to me is that to me is financial pornography. And, and I don't mean to besmirch or disparage him. I just think that, that while he's a, clearly a smart, capable guy and doing, doing terrific things, you can't always be right. So you do, just can't. Do you use uh, uh, so pre-built funds from uh, like specific companies like ETFs or, or are, you, are you actually building some funds yourself? No, we, we are using primarily exchange-traded funds, uh, mutual funds and other pooled investment vehicles. Um, with a very close eye on uh, expense ratios and costs because they matter. What, what's um, an average very, uh, management expense ratio, say, for, for a client? On, on average, how much would they pay? Uh, right now, expense ratio is going to be under 25 basis points in most cases. So that's 0.25%? Yeah, we keep them really, really low in terms of what managers are charging. Some will be lower than that. That's really um, low. But, well, I, I just think it doesn't make sense to pay folks to do something they can't do. And, and then on top, yeah, I, on top of those uh, uh, MERs, you would have a, a fee for the overall uh, management? That's right. And, and ours will range from 60 basis points to 140 basis points, depending on a lot of factors. But our average for a client is about 1%. Yes. So if you can be all in at 1.2 or so, yeah. you're, you're already less expensive than a typical uh, level-loaded share. It is. Yeah. Is it more expensive than doing it yourself? Of course. Anything you hire someone to do will be more expensive than doing it yourself. But the delta is small enough that one would hope that if nothing else, just by by being a voice of reason in the storm, you know, the, the, they say any port will do in a storm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, but they also say any captain's fine in good weather. So I think there's a, a tendency to want to carve out and, and make something as inexpensive as possible by doing it yourself. And that's fine, except that human nature and emotion and passion and, and fear and greed and all the other big, powerful things hit all of us. It's human. 
And and your overall, um, you're, you're not even that much more expensive than than say if you went to a robo advisor. Not much more at all because they can get close to one percent total uh, as well, right? But they're I think not. A lot of it depends on a lot of it depends on account sizes with them and other things. But true, are we more expensive than doing it yourself? Of course. Yeah. But are we less expensive than the majority of firms, particularly the big firms that have six layers of management to feed? Of course. And what, what I was going to say was you provide so much more value than either doing it yourself or robo-advisors because, uh, you know, you, you do what I, uh, what I like to promote and, and, and it's a, a holistic financial planning. That's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think to look at one piece, particularly a portfolio, and look at it in a vacuum is doing someone a disservice because if you don't know what else is going on, you're going to make mistakes. There's going to be hemorrhage. There's going to be uh, either tax mistakes or decision tree mistakes. You're, you're, I think it's important to look at it from 30,000 feet. Say a 25-year-old comes to you or, you know, say, let's say 30-year-old, and uh, they have a, a, a nice amount of money to invest on a monthly. They come to you and you're going to talk to them about investments, of course, but also insurance, right? We're going to talk about everything. We're going to talk about real estate and debt and cash flow mm-hmm. and insurance and risk management and employee benefits and legal and tax planning and everything portfolio and everything. Meanwhile, if somebody goes to a bank uh, and say, I want to buy this investment product, they're going to say, thanks for the money. Here's your investment product. I'm sure there's some exceptions to that. But for the most part, yeah, if, if you go into a store to buy something, they're not going to take three steps back and start doing an analysis. They're going to sell you what you came to buy. It's true. They won't say like, you already have too many t-shirts. I don't <laughs> I think right. I don't think you need this one with the Guns N' Roses logo on it, Eric. Can you really have too many T-shirts? I, I don't know. I, I, I'm actually probably the worst person to ask because all I wear is T-shirts. <laughs> Sounds comfortable. Constantly, yeah, it is. Well, I'm also working from my basement, so that's a totally different story. So you're gonna sit with them and go through. That, that's that's what this is all about. That's what. You know, I do in terms of my basics for coaching because, I mean, in Canada, uh, financial planning is not uh, uh, regulated as it is in the States, right? Well, in, in the States, the, the, the regulatory it? environment, oh, it's, it's highly regulated, yeah. not in terms of, of what advice you do or don't render, but in terms of, uh, of how you position yourself at the table with a consumer um, you know, as CFPs, as certified financial planner practitioners, we are fiduciaries and we absolutely have to do what's in the best interest of our clients. And frankly, I can't fathom an environment where I'd want to do it any other way. Yeah. But uh, that's not true across the board. There are lots of folks who call themselves financial advisors, but really are just stockbrokers or insurance agents or bankers or other things. And again, that doesn't mean they're doing a terrible job or trying to hurt anybody. It just means they're they're held to a different standard. And that standard is a suitability standard instead of a fiduciary one. That's right. And, and you know, what I was saying about, um, you know, that the, there's regulation of, in, about investments, of course. Uh, but you, anybody in Canada, as you said, and also in the States, anybody can sit down and say that there's something. But once you get to actually giving specific investment advice or uh, selling anything, then, of course, you have to have licenses for that. That's true, although I, I would argue that the licensing exams are, are not much of a barrier to entry in a field where the barrier could be higher and still be okay. Yeah. That's I mean, a, think, think about what it takes to be a doctor by comparison to what it takes to be a stockbroker. It's a good point. I mean, uh, you know, the people like to trust letters, and that's what we go back to the conversation we had at the beginning uh, was, 
Sure, letters are great. Like, look at the people's letters, and you know, I have a couple of letters. I I don't talk about it much, but I have a, a something called a registered retirement consultant designation. But I don't necessarily want people to look at that first. I want them to trust me by talking to me and you know, having a conversation. And then, if you're wondering, oh, do you have any credentials? I can point you to a, a code of ethics that I that I follow. Sure. Well, I, and I, I think it's okay to use education to demonstrate some competency, but you can't demonstrate diligence by hanging a diploma on a wall. No. And you certainly can't demonstrate integrity, despite what folks might want to say. Integrity is not something you can, you can, you, know, you don't get a patch on your arm that says, boy, look, look at my integrity. And that's much um, confidence that's, is something you can earn. That's so much more important than than anything. I mean, you could have the most educated people, and uh, but they turn out to be super corrupt, and and they steal all your money. Well, and Hollywood's done a good job of painting folks in our alleged industry oh, that man. way for for decades. I mean, they're not doing us any favors, but neither neither was Bernie Madoff. No, or uh, you know, some, Wolf of Wall Street. Right. I mean, these people these people exist, and they're the extreme examples. The fact that those folks were able to do what they were able to do is shocking to me in an environment that allegedly is highly regulated and careful, but it still exists. So, you know, I I think consumers need to beware of anyone not using a a national or international custodian. You know, who's actually taking custody of the assets? No one's ever writing, I don't know about your firm, but no one ever writes a check to our firm. No, Ever, for anything. I'm not registered to sell anything, right? So okay. what okay. I do is I, uh, when it comes time to implement the plan, uh, I have a specific referral agreements that pass all registral activities over to um, actual investment uh, professionals. Got it. Yeah, and Got and that's well, important to know. Like you know, I I I'm not uh, technically allowed or legally allowed to do risk assessment and talk about specific investments. That we can talk about general, what's your plan, what do you want to achieve? And then I can say, here are the people who are professionals at this part of it, and they will help you achieve these goals. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and it's, it's real important to draw that line because consumers really don't know the difference any more, any more than we know the difference in other fields that are foreign to us, right? That's right. Um, it's very tough for a family or an individual or a consumer to say, um, boy, this, this, I, I'm comparing these three organizations, firms, or individuals, and, and I can really do a, a deep dive apples to apples for these folks. They can't. It, it's almost impossible for a, an average consumer to do that, and we've made it complicated, some of that by legislation, some of it by regulation, and some of it on purpose. I believe every industry throws jargon around almost to keep themselves employed. That's right. And I, I don't, I don't get, and we're I don't guilty. get it. Yeah. Well, but as an industry, we're guilty of it. Even as individuals, we try not to be. It's true. It's true. Cause you know, well to, for any industry to seem like an expert, you want to have a kind of high knowledge of what it is you're talking about. And then sometimes we don't understand everything doctors say, but they are trained to communicate with us in a language that we understand because it's important. Well, and but some do a better job than others. That's you, right. You hear the term the term bedside manner came yes. from somewhere, and we have that and too. We have bedside manner issues as well. No question, and and that's why we often see, and this this might play into what you do very heavily, but we we see folks in the medical space hire healthcare advocates 
to speak to the doctors for them and with them. Yep. That's which, especially in elder care. Yeah, I've always been a, a bridge person because I always seem to be between two industries, if you will. Like I, for years, for about 12 years, I worked in the music business in finance. And so communicating to music people and communicating with finance people, they don't always talk to each other very well. Makes perfect sense. And and that, sense. that's the case for, for a lot of situations. So sure, yeah, we might have some high-level knowledge, but we're not going to be sitting there trying to confuse people. My goal, especially with my website and with this podcast, is to break it down for everybody so that they can get the knowledge uh, in th- in ways that make sense to them. Now, and, and you've done this too. Right? You, so you have a degree, you got a degree in English, is that what you said? Yeah, no, I, I, I a degree in English. I do a lot of public speaking and writing and we write all of our client communications ourselves. We're not we're not, uh, you know, pushing out content that's not ours and, and those kinds of things. And but did you always want to be, be an author? Or did you always have this in the back of your head? I'm going to write something someday. I, I did, although candidly, I, I, in in college, I studied late 18th century romantic poetry. Okay. <laughs> and, and so I can I can. Tell I'm sorry you, to laugh. I'm sorry. Well, no, no. Listen, I can tell you right now that Wordsworth, Coleridge, Shelley, Keats, Byron, and Blake are not helping me in my career one iota. They haven't. I oh, I thought you were going to say they did. They did help you oh, when it came to writing no. your books. But did they help you with writing your books? I think they helped me in reading, researching, and enjoying the written word. Sure. Okay. But to suggest that Tintern Abbey turned into retire wealthy, I, I don't know. <laughs> that, that's a stretch, even so, for me. So what? So your first book uh, was it? Uh, wait, late two thousands. Uh, first book was yeah oh nine. And it what, was called Debt, Debt Free for Life. Okay. And it was an interesting experience. I was an author for hire. I was actually called and asked to write a book for a, a fledgling publishing company. Okay. And I, I thought I was being punked, actually. I thought somebody <laughs> was had been put up to this. I thought this was a prank call of some kind. Sure. But it was legitimate. And um, so I, I wasn't paid a lot for the work, but I learned how to do it. Yeah, so that's again, a good experience. And I learned, how to, I learned how to write a book. And I had editors and I had all these kinds of things. Um, and, and the book did fine. The publishing company didn't because eventually the, the recession kicked the heck out of it and uh, the publishing company is gone. But the education that I got was invaluable. So when I went to write my second, I self-published in, in 2014. Okay. And I published a book called Retire Wealthy, which deliberately was a play on words because the premise was that uh, to retire is a terrible idea, much the way we talked about that it, it, yeah. to, to retreat or disappear. And what is wealthy? I mean, wealthy is relative. Are you wealthy? Well, if you're if you've got more money than the guy or gal sitting next to you, you feel wealthy, and if you don't, you feel poor. It's relative. So, so you pick um, two relative terms that don't have uh, that are different for everybody to to make exactly a point. Right. Yeah, I like that's that. That's exactly right. And and I quote some interesting people in the book. I quote you know Bobby Bowden, the head coach from Florida State football. I quote Chris Rock, who is a great philosopher by any by any stretch. Yeah, um, one of the it, best. It, it was a, it was a fun book to write because um, it, a lot of it's tongue in cheek. I wrote it in first person. It's a two hour read. It's the kind of thing where on a, on a flight from uh, from from Toronto to, to to Winnipeg, you'd read the whole book, you know. And uh, in case you're heading that way, um, but uh, it, it was a fun book to read uh, to write because I got to really be colorful with language and I got to to speak as if I was speaking out loud. It was almost like a screenplay. And I joke with folks who read it. I'm like, I don't need a book report, but a diorama would be nice, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, 
so I'm working on a third uh, on a third project now, which is going to take the better part of 18 months to two years to get out. But okay, um, wow. I, I, I am I want to reframe retirement and do it more obviously because uh, retire wealthy as a play on words. Unless you read it, you didn't really understand that that was different than every other book on how to get rich. Sure, sure. Which of course. it's not. It's not a book on how to get rich. It's a book about financial independence. But it looked like every other book about how to get rich. And, and so, of course, those are a dime a dozen. And so I think some of the messaging, I'm going to do a second edition of it. I just finished an ebook, which I'm very excited is going to go out live to the, to the world in the next couple of days. Oh, wow. Um, we, we, we obtained a new domain. Uh, which is uh, www.lowtaxbook.com. Okay. And um, it's, a, it's about a 20-page read on four tax strategies that almost anyone can use. Now, it is American-centric. Uh, I'll, I'll warn your, sure. your audience to that. Though I believe there are similar strategies in slightly different nomenclature in Canada. Yeah. Uh, but none, nonetheless, it's, it's, it's an idea about creating, putting money where it will never be taxed again. Okay. And, and so there are four strategies that I, that I uh, utilize to do that, and I use them in my own life. And I was able to tell some personal stories in addition to this in, in that book. So that'll go out in the next couple of days, uh, and I'll make sure I, I send you a, a link to it. Yeah, I'll put so. the, all the links in the, uh, in the show notes. And, oh, that's uh, great. And then, the, and then the big project is going to be, uh, it is tentatively titled uh, Don't Retire, Graduate. Okay. And the premise is that, that you know, I, I, I'm, I'm anticipating doing a lot of public talks around it, and I may do them in cap and gown, as if I was speaking to the graduating class of life. Because, uh, you know, I know it's a little tongue in cheek, but the fact of the matter is, if we are moving towards something when we stop our normal full-time employment, as opposed to moving away from something, it gives us something to look forward to instead of something to dread. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. It is a... Uh kind of a graduate you, know, you graduate from school you graduate from uh the 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 work life and yeah. uh, you should it should be you should be celebrating but you don't right. you so can don't, keep don't working go, you can do whatever you want and don't go out to pasture be bow 2.0 that's right like uh, 2.0 or uh, however many iterations it takes yeah absolutely and leaving your uh it's like leaving your body and you know becoming a non-corporeal being or something like that that's what it feels it's like the soul the soul gets to live on <laughs> Right. I, well, uh, maybe that's a, a, a different three to four. Um, but uh, no, that, that's fine. I, I think there's there's something to be said for people who retire and have nothing to do don't live very long. That, that, that's and true. You, I've heard that. You need more than shuffleboard and crossword puzzles to stay sharp. It's just not going to do it. And so um, I think, and it doesn't have to be for money. If you're financially independent, you can absolutely retire from the working world economically, but volunteer, join organizations, be involved with your kids or grandkids or schools, or use the knowledge that you have to educate people, even if it's pro bono. Yeah, people will, but, people will take advantage of you. Don't, don't mistake it. If you have skills, there will be people who want it, especially if it's for free. But it's not like riding a bicycle. You only have skills if you use them. That's, right. That's a muscle you have to flex. And as soon as you're, I, I've watched this, I've watched people who a year or two after they retire, if they're not doing something that's really engaging, they age so fast. And it's, this is, uh, I have nothing more than anecdotal evidence to support this. I'm not, this is not scientific, but it seems to me that the people who really thrive in the next chapter of their lives have an, a vibrant and exciting chapter to thrive in. Absolutely. 
Hey, my, my parents opened a bed and breakfast uh, after they both retired from the dental industry. Uh, and they're, oh, more dentists. They're, they're, having, too, huh? <laughs> they're having a ball. They're, uh, they're loving the bed and breakfast. And they kind of thought that they would maybe retire, like if it, you know, the traditional retirement uh, in Stratford, Ontario. But uh, they found this uh, opportunity and they just jumped on it. And, uh, and uh, they're, they're living life, you know? Uh, that is that is an excellent plan, and and one a lot of people can learn from. Candidly, exactly. and it doesn't have to be that. It can be whatever whatever you know gets you excited to get up in the morning and to have a a, a reason. I think if you don't have a reason to get up in the morning, you eventually sleep later and later and later until you're sleeping till noon, and you have no reason to get out of bed. That's it. It's that that is a depressing view of the future. We got uh, an eternity to be laying down. I, I want to be out and doing things as long as I'm able. Yeah, as as everybody should, and and uh, you want to be doing something that motivates you every day to to get out of bed. So, That's right. Eric, how do people? First of all, how do they uh, uh, find your books? The the first one is available online still, even though the uh, publisher is gone, right? The the well, the first the first one has very limited copies left. Oh, okay. The second one is, is live. It's on Amazon.com and and the major retailers. Yeah. Um, it's also available through our our website, which is uh, BrotmanFinancial.com. That's B R O T M A N Financial.com. I'll put the links and, in the show uh, notes for the for for that. That's and, great. Everything. And, and as I mentioned to you, LowTaxBook.com is going live. It's just a downloadable ebook. There's no cost. Uh, it, it's just some tax strategies to introduce ourselves to the world on a different level and. Um, and it was it was like wetting my appetite for doing writing again. I'm I'm going to sit and write this next book. I just sent an, an outline to the publisher this morning. That's great. And, uh, I'm I'm excited about it. But it does. It takes an enormous amount of time to put one together. And you know, I still have a day job and and a family too. So I'm 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 not full time as an author. That's for sure. No. And uh, are you going to be making a podcast of your own? Uh, yeah, we are, uh, we're, we're building a studio here in the office, um, which we expect to be completed in early April. And I'm, I'm targeting a, uh, a, an August or September launch. Um, and actually, it's funny, I, there'll be two separate and distinct podcasts. One, I, I was asked by a local leadership organization, the Leadership Maryland, which is a statewide uh, organization. I was asked to host a monthly podcast of lessons in leadership, which I'm, I'm actively working to put together and I'll have some really neat guests on that. That's great. Uh, and, and then I'm looking to create a podcast that again, I believe will be called uh, don't retire, graduate. And that'll be the, the whole theme. And we'll be talking about people who have successfully made that transition into the next stage of their lives. And, and also talking about financial strategies to get there. So almost a companion to your, your book. Uh, and by the time it comes out, you'll have a bunch of, of episodes. That would be ideal. I may be calling you because you're 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 excellent at this, and I'm going to need would some advice. Be so happy that to might be, be your on. trip. Your trip to Maryland. Come down. Show us all the stuff we need. Go I'll shopping come, on somebody else's credit card. <laughs> okay, I'll be, be I'll perfect. be there. I'll be there when uh, uh, we'll uh, I'll see you at FinCon in September, probably uh, in great. Orlando, and uh, maybe I can work it in around then. Uh, the, sounds um, perfect. I will be there. I can't. I can't let you go without talking about uh, um, the tragically hip because oh, I remember that you said that uh, you are, you are a fan, but also you have a you have a story. Are you able to share this story? I forget if it was offensive or or oh no <laughs> or no not. no I, <laughs> or I, I uncomfortable. Was, I was in Churchill, Manitoba. Yeah, which is I was a a real real can really Canada, like the can, most Canadian part. 
You know, when, when it's October and the high for the day is seven below, people spend a good amount of time inside. <laughs> and so we were in a local watering hole, which was really great. And there was a, a musician playing and he was he was playing the hip and, and I was singing along. And, you know, I, I had tourists written all over me. Everybody else in the place knew each other because it's a small town. And so he, he came over, he introduced himself. He says, where are you from? And I told him, he says, most Americans don't know the hip. I said, well, there's a bunch of stuff. I, you know, I, I bring all kinds of American knowledge, too. And so I wound up settling an argument about American football, uh, a heated argument between two Canadian sports fans. Yeah. And it was, of all things, it was about the number of players on the field at the same time, which does feel like something one could Google if one was so inclined. But Maybe not in Churchill, Manitoba, yeah. Well, that's fair. The signal was not great. but So I settled the argument. Uh, I wound up having some adult beverages with a, a, a bunch of folks and, and really had a great experience up there and uh, uh, enjoyed it. And, and, you know, I've been to Canada a bunch of times and absolutely love it up there. And I, I still have two or three Canadian destinations on my bucket list. So I, I'll be back for sure. And I, I, I think I, uh, I might have been the one to break it to you that uh, Gord Downey passed away. And so we don't have any more, uh, more hip, but we still have the catalog. Um, of well, awesome yeah. songs to listen to. Uh, like you said, not a lot of Americans could appreciate, but, but you can. Yep. I, I, I've, I've been a fan a long time and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a diehard ice hockey fan. I, I love, I love NHL hockey, but I also love minor league hockey and uh, even high school and college hockey. So it's a, it's a great game. And one I didn't grow up around, I adopted it as a teenager, as a fan and been watching it 30 plus years. Well, uh, we'll just call you an honorary Canadian. I guess, uh, so uh, what about uh, if anybody in Maryland is uh, listening, uh, are you accepting clients or are you uh, kind of full up or how does it, uh, how is it working now? We're, we're absolutely accepting new clients. We have, um, we have seven financial advisors here uh, in the firm. All of us work as a team. None of us compete with each other. We all work to, to take, uh, to take care of families together. So I'm, I am reachable and happy to have a, a conversation with folks about whether, we're the right fit for them and, and tell them a little bit about us. And then I can make an introduction to one of our team, any of whom I would trust all day long to, to take care of my own family. So uh, we're absolutely accepting clients and would love to work with new families. And, and in fact, we have clients in 25 states. So it's, we're, we're okay. not. Oh, so it's not. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't realize. So. Oh yeah. All over the we place. have clients all over the place. Yeah. Great. Okay. That, and that's something you can do in the, sta- the States. I, I like that. You, you're not yes, limited it, to your state. That's right. We can, we can work with, we can functionally work with any U.S. citizen anywhere in the world. Okay. So if, if that makes sense, um, you know, we have, we've had uh, clients in Asia and South America and Europe. I, never in Canada, though, although uh, we're getting closer. We have uh, some folks who I think are actually moving up to B.C. So uh, that, that would be our first, which is great. And they're U.S. citizens, so we can continue to work with them. Well, you know, I'm really glad that we met in Dallas at, at FinCon, Eric, and uh, that uh, I was there when you kind of discovered the world of podcasts. So <laughs> it was really fun to see you be like, "This, wow, this is a world that is awesome and I didn't know existed. Yeah, I, not only didn't I know it existed, but I was like, wow, these, these are my people. Like, yeah. I, I love this. You what found, a, you found your group. tribe and I, so much so that you, you're joining. You're, you didn't even waste any time. You're, you're building this studio and, and being on podcasts, and it's great. So, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I definitely feel like I, I did find the tribe. I, I'm a little late in life to do it, frankly, but still got a long trajectory in front of me. So uh, it's going to be a fun ride, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to... Glad to have you on board as a sounding a sounding board because I'm I'm going to be new at this. I'm the rookie again. 
Of course, anytime. And, and uh, hey, I still need some advice on, on sound uh, engineering because uh, it's a challenge every time for me to try to get the right level. So it's, you know, it's, you don't, uh, it's not something you learn right out of the box and you get better with time. And I'm happy to, to help uh, whenever you need it. Boa, thank you. And uh, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and uh, wish you continued success uh, with all the hats you wear, my friend. All right. Thanks, Eric. Take care now. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever else you go to get your podcasts. It would mean a lot to me, and it only takes a few seconds. For the show notes and any links from the episode, head over to my website, investwisely.ca. And while you're there, send me a message on my contact page. Thanks so much for listening to my 25th episode of the Personal Finance Show. Here's to the next 25 and the next 25 after that and so on. But for now, I'll be back next week with Matt Matheson. He's an assistant principal and also teaches his fifth and sixth graders about personal finance. And he's got a great new blog called methodtoyourmoney.ca.